Now, uh, as you'll be aware, we did start about 10 minutes uh, later than the scheduled time, and I'm anxious to do two things in the next 30 minutes. One is to keep to time, um, and the other is to allow as much time as possible for uh, questions from uh, the audience here and via the tweets. I think last year we didn't have time for any of that, and that was uh, a criticism. So I'm going to, uh, I think, uh, shorten the period of time we have for Michael and uh, Cameron to talk with each other without intervention from the floor. And I think what I will do, uh, each has now given their presentation, Michael was the last to speak, I will ask each of them if they want to pick up on anything that the other has said uh, and take issue with it, ask for qualification or, or anything like that. And perhaps I could turn to Cameron first, as you haven't spoken for a while. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that makes a change. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, I think it's interesting the way that's worked out, that the, the way, the basis on which we disagree, so I, I agree with the framework of the analysis. I guess what's interesting to me is the point on which we disagree is going to be what are the important pressures. So yeah. I think I, I agree that the surveys and, and history indicate that from the perspective of a researcher, I know this myself, um, that all of those things are very important. We see this in the way the REF in the UK is going to focus on those conventional published outputs. Um, what I, where I think we, we are going to differ is on, the, is on the consumption side. And my, my sense is that as we, that we are going in two quite different directions, and that unless we make, unless we build a bridge, we will, that, that will be the asteroid. And the asteroid will be actually the public looking at what we do. <coughs> and saying, actually, this is just not up to scratch. We're not interested in spending money on it anymore. And, um, and that's you know, where we need to demonstrate efficiency and effectiveness. And those pressures to enable consumption of research information in the way that people uh, are going to expect is going to be an increasingly important pressure. And that might shift. Uh, research, I know researchers are conservative. We're very conservative about how we do things. Um, but my sense is that that will lead to the shift because those pressures will change. Well, it's always possible. I mean, uh, one can't rule anything out. You're talking about the future, of course. Um, I think the thing I would want to make a distinction between are those uh, institutionalized pressures and those more fundamental ones. Because it seems to me that you often hear uh, in the debate, you often hear particularly, I think, in North America, people talking about publish or perish as a, as, as, as a paradigm. And I actually think that's, that's slightly to misunderstand what's going on. Publish or, per or perish is there on the assumption that the thing that's really driving people is only about career, it's only about survival uh, in an academic context. And I'd argue actually that, that it's a more of a multiplier than, than actually the prime driver. And the reason I say that is because if you actually look at uh, authors from industry, they're not being promoted for uh, publishing, and yet they still publish. And if you ask them why they publish, the reasons they give, the fundamental reasons, are rather similar to the same reasons that your colleagues in academia would give. And I'd argue that actually the professionalization of uh, academic work has acted as a multiplier effect rather than the primary cause. And the primary cause why people want to publish is this, uh, and, and have their ideas recognized as theirs is the same one that everybody in this room has, namely, if we think of something first, and we think it's a good idea, no matter what profession or job we're in, A, we'd like other people to know that we thought of it, and B, we don't want our colleagues stealing that idea, 
and C, we want our, our colleagues and perhaps our bosses to recognize that it was us that thought that. And that is such a fundamental human thing that I think any system that we develop has to contain something that delivers that. And what I'm failing to see in some of the very clever stuff that's being done, and, and, and I think it has a huge role to play in lots of ways, what I'm failing to see in that is something that actually replaces these sort of fundamental human attributes, which I think are there and actually are the main causative factor behind why we have the system that we have. Um, we have the system that we have not because of librarians or of publishers. We have it because of the fundamental nature of human beings acting as researchers. Can I interject here? Yeah. Um, I, I, I take all that on board. But it's interesting. It seems to me that in listening to Michael and Cameron speaking, we're getting little views through little windows into things, but we're not really seeing what's going on in the room behind the windows. And I can sort of pick up on a couple of things that, uh, that seem to me to be sort of contradictory in a way. Uh, on the one hand, Michael has said at one point that PDFs predominate, that, that there's a huge demand for inert, stable uh, PDFs. But I didn't see a PDF when you were given, you know, all the stuff you were showing us was much more flexible and, and, and actually much more sort of, it's peered to be much more generated by authors and this sort of thing. And, and that sort of seemed to me to be a bit of a contradiction. And I thought, is that because of differences in, in, in the sort of sectors within which we're talking? You know, why the difference? Are, are you both right? So, I mean, I, can, I, can, I know that my behavior, which I've monitored because I think, it's, I think this is an interesting question. Um, my behavior as a researcher does not conform to the average behavior that is mostly self-reported. Um, so I loathe looking at PDFs. Um, they're, they're, they're really in the, in the wrong form. In the, in the, I don't print things out. I'll read things on screen. So the reading on screen, I think, is becoming, I think we heard that yesterday, becoming increasingly common. Um, and a lot of that's going to relate also to mobile devices and, and tablets and these kinds of things. Um, I suspect that part of, the, part of the issue is that much of what we do as researchers, we don't necessarily think of as reading. So I think at one level, we kind of associate the reading part with um, sitting down with a PDF or a, or a paper copy. That's still a, an image we have in our head. And we don't think about a lot of the other information searching behavior that we do, the, the systems we set up, the searches. Um, and so I suspect there's a little bit of a, a break point there in terms of what people report and what they do in practice. Um, but I think my sense is that we're shifting. So the, a couple of years ago, you would have people would have said they printed out these PDFs and Sat and, sat and read them somewhere. I think that's shifting. I think we're in the process of a change. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how far that will go. Because clearly, the, the, the old saw that keeps coming out is people want to be able to take these things into the bath. I'm not, never quite sure why anyone <laughs> would want to do that. It's probably, probably slightly better than taking it into the shower. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 actually, I think we may both be right, to be fair. Because when I'm talking about the predominance of PDF, I'm merely looking at download figures. And so I'm looking at one particular type of use that people are putting it to, which is potentially printing it out, which is potentially reading it in the, uh, the apocryphal bath. Um, but I think there are other uses too. I mean, when people are working 
they're using the scholarly literature in one particular way, but they're also using other forms of literature at the same time. And I don't think the one rules the other out. Um, I think we have to be aware, and this is where I would concede some ground to Cameron here, that actually the, the form of the article is actually more about establishing trust and authority about what was done than perhaps it is about consumption. And I think you see that reflected in the fact that um, people are using some of the attributes of articles to save themselves time when they read. So in other words, we've only got so much time, so I only want to read stuff that I think I trust. But if they're really desperate to find something out, then they'll go anywhere. And they may or may not, they'll leave the trust thing perhaps a bit later on. So I think we have to distinguish between two types of behavior. One is um, information seeking versus literature consumption. And I'm not sure they're the same. No, I think, I think, I think that, that's absolutely true. And I think the other, the other interesting aspect of this is, of course, a lot of what we, when we use some of these things that are layered, I mean, for better or worse, most of the information we're talking about at the moment is in text form in, in, in journal articles. Um, and a lot of us are using tools that sit on top of that, as, that are somehow summarizing, managing, indexing, aggregating. I mean, I used, I showed examples of using Google Scholar and Google. That sits on top of machines reading, um, for the most part at the moment, the full text literature. So it's interesting to think about where that fits in as well. Mm. Okay. I'd like to throw it open now to the floor. Can I just say, um, we have two roving mics, Anne Lawson, who is halfway up and will deal with this side. Uh, Hazel, if you go to the stage there and pick up that one there with the yellow uh, top to it and do this side nearest the door. Um, so if you have anything, any questions you'd like to ask or any point that you'd like to raise, uh, please do raise uh, your hand. And while you have a chance to collect your... Oh, there is a hand there. Yeah, I think that's Hugh That's fixed. I think you're nearest, Hazel. Oh. Where are we? Uh, it's Hugh on, on the... Just behind Fitton. Yeah. This one's, work. this one's working. Um, I think both very interesting talks. There seems to me to be an, a couple of underlying theories which relate to what we're saying from Cameron's point of view. Christensen's theory of disruptive innovation, which is well enough known now, and would say that at the moment perhaps incumbent players aren't recognizing the power um, of what might happen. And it's a traditional incumbent player position. But equally, I think. Um, listening to what Michael said, become very conscious that one of the things that the innovators have failed to do at the moment is address Moore's chasm theory that between the early adopters and then these things finding their way into the mass market, as Michael rightly points out, there's a huge disconnect at the moment between what the early adopters see as being important and what the mass market actually wants to do. And um, Moore's solution to this is that it has to work, if you like, out of the box, I think is the expression he uses for the mass market to take it up. And I think what Michael's picking up is at the moment, a lot of this doesn't actually address those needs out of the box. You can get there, but it requires a lot of integration by the individual to do many of these things. And that while we have these two disconnects of theory going on without looking at innovation in general, and we treat ourselves as a special case in some way, that's in somehow it seems different from the way innovation works in other fields, we're not kind of understanding our own position. 
I think that still leaves open. What I don't know is whether if we understood it better, we'd be able to influence it. And that, I think, is a very interesting question. Okay. Um, I'll turn to Charlie now. Are there any tweets that you'd like to share with us, Charlie? Any, any comments or questions that seem germane? There are lots of tweets. Is this mic on? Are you yeah. hearing me? Yeah, it is on, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, lo loads of tweets have come in. I feel like the person on the news that has to do this. Um, uh, one, one that came in quite early on, and I would like to go back to this point um, when Cameron was speaking, is isn't, isn't this all, I think that was what you were saying, isn't this all really discipline-specific? Won't humanities always need sustained argument of articles? So I think there are, some, there are clearly some things that are discipline-specific, but I think actually Michael's argument that a lot of these things are, are constant um, also holds. Um, certainly it is the case... I, I feel that in, the, in the, the physical and biological sciences, there are probably smaller fragments um, that are useful. But I would argue in the humanities, there's, and this, this is, I think this is borne out by actual use of online media, there's been a massive shift um, onto the blogosphere as a, as a means of carrying a developing argument over time. So we've seen this. Um, and it's also true in the social science. There was an interesting article in the New York Times about a month ago suggesting that, in fact, the economics literature has now has really just turned into notches on the bedpost now for the purpose of tenure, and that all the interesting stuff is on SSRN and on economics blogs. Um, and and, we, and then so we're, we're left with this certification issue, which we seem to be retaining in some disciplines. We're retaining the certification system long after it. everyone's actually ignoring the stuff that's being generated. So I think there's a lot more work to be done to really understand the differences. And I think the interesting question, I point at Neve Devard's work particularly on this, is, is the boundary between the smallest useful fragment of research in a particular discipline and how that needs to be aggregated into an argument or a narrative or an index or some sort of aggregation to be useful for different audiences. And I think that's the interesting question. I still think that the humanities will still be disrupted in the same way, but it will probably take different forms. I think that's part of the argument is actually that we will end up with actually quite different forms of research communication in different disciplines that will develop as a result of those disciplinary differences. And we don't understand them well enough yet, but I think we're starting to get there. I think I would agree with that, actually. I mean, a lot of the, a lot, we tend to paper over a lot of the differences. We assume a, a single monolithic model when, in fact, it probably isn't the case and never was. Uh, one example that I, I picked up listening to uh, Greg talking yesterday about SSRN is that, and I mentioned it briefly in, in my talk, but I think it's actually quite fundamental, is the philosophical nature of the things that researchers investigate actually affects how they feel about copyright, how they feel about speed of publication, how they feel about priority. Let me unpack that. The, the model that you could use for most scientists and most empirical disciplines is essentially that they're, 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 they're naive um, uh, rationalists. They believe that what they're discovering is something physical, even if it isn't, even if it's an idea, but it's something that's out there, and it's an objective truth as far as they're concerned. And therefore, their mode of operation is that if it's objective and it's a truth and it's out there, then someone else could find it before me. And therefore, the speed at which I report my findings is really important. And I probably don't care so much about um, the words that I use because it's the idea 
that really matters to me. On the other side of the coin, in the humanities, particularly if you're thinking of things like English literature, for example, um, if I happen to be the world expert on Jane Austen, and I'm writing yet another piece about Jane Austen, it'd be very difficult for somebody to scoop me, because my views about Austen is what people are coming to look at. So there's a subjective truth there. Well, if you have a subjective truth, then priority is a meaningless concept in that concept. You know, it takes the time it takes for you to express your views. But the words you express them in matter tremendously to you. So therefore, you as an author will be really worried about whether or not you can retain your copyright in those words. And I think if we look at custom and practice, we can see those sorts of differences out there. You know, very naively, the sciences are concerned about speed of publication uh, and, and I think adhere very much the sort of um, five-function paradigm model that I was outlining. Um, other disciplines, perhaps not so much. And uh, in fact, the studies that we were doing as part of that um, survey work on, on, uh, on attitudes, one of the things that came out of there was there were significant, uh, statistically significant differences cropping up in economics, mathematics, uh, and high-energy physics and theoretical disciplines. And these all came about for very, very good reasons about what the nature of peer review is. So, for example, if peer review means um, somebody redoing the proof, in, as it would be in mathematics or in a theoretical discipline, then every reader can do that. So, therefore, it slightly undermines the certification idea. Um, if uh, you're a computer scientist and you're creating a computer model, that, again, is quite difficult to, 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 to peer review without you just simply looking at the computer model. But on the other hand, if you're the vast majority of experimental scientists, um, A, people don't necessarily know you as different from anybody else within that discipline, so they want to be reassured that you can be trusted. Uh, and B, you're probably reporting empirical results where you do really want to be sure that they've done their work properly, and you're looking at a peer review process. If you work at CERN, on the other hand, and you're one of several hundred authors, how will two extra uh, anonymous referees improve a paper that's already been checked by 100 people? So you can see how these differences arise. And I would argue, actually, that, that the strong form of the model, although I think it is probably um, maintained for the vast majority, certainly numerically, of scientists. I mean, experimentalists are much more common in, in, in the biomedical sphere, in chemistry, in geology, and elsewhere than these people I'm talking about. Nonetheless, there are significant differences there, and I think we ought to recognize that, that not only has that always been the case, but probably that's going to increase rather than decrease. I think there are, there are differences between biology and chemistry that I've noticed sitting on the, on, on the boundaries between, between those two um, in, in my research career. I think the other interesting thing is that the, the place where we will see disruption is when there's a form of informal communication that lets people get to a registered discovery quicker. That, that's where things will change when the, when the, the communication, so we, we, now, we know that getting there first, getting it registered is, 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 is important. Yeah. And so where's the balance between I could get there three months earlier, but I'm going to have to share authorship with a couple of other people, or maybe with the whole world, if I can get there fast enough. That's, that's when things start to get really interesting. It does come down to trust. I mean, in the early debates uh, of the setting up of the journal system, um, before it was fully realized the advantages of doing what Oldenburg had come up with, you had lots of instances of, uh, particularly Robert Hooke, trying to hide his discoveries in anagrams in Latin 
and claiming that because he printed that 10 years earlier, that he had priority. And of course, people were saying, well, come on, you didn't actually say it in so many words. But they were really concerned about intellectual property theft. And I don't think that, uh, that our ancestors are any more irrational about this than we are in that sense. So you say it will lead you to the registration point. Well, who does the registering? Do you trust them to register it? Because it's pretty clear to me that if I created my own website and I put all my research results up there, people might legitimately say, well, of course he's going to support his own research. How, how do I trust him? And this is where the idea of a third party doing that registration, a trusted third party, comes in. And I think that's one of the issues that we often overlook, is that the role that the publisher is bringing to the table is the disinterested third party, who will not have any influence in the academic currents of debate that are going on, but is there just merely to ensure that these things are registered and they're registered fairly. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really important point that often gets missed. That's also, I guess, the point where there is, a, there is a break point in the sense that where that trust breaks down, as I think there are, there are examples where this, where this has happened or could happen, that's when things, things really radically change. I mean, coming back to the question here at one level, um, there's another set of theory that's probably worth bringing in, which is the you know, theory of social, social change um, in, in small communities, um, particularly where those, ch well, those changes are not beneficial to an individual, but are beneficial to the whole. And so there's another way this can work, which is just the governments tell us to do it. And that's a significant um, probability if, if we don't see um, a move towards what they see as efficient communication. Uh, another tweet, Charlie? Uh, so we have another good one here. Do you think micro-publication and automated research will change author behavior and needs? Do you think micro-publication and automated research will change what? Author behavior and needs. Author behavior and needs. No, I think it's the wrong way around. I think the behavior and needs precede what you then do. Um, I, I, certainly there's been a lot of argument about reducing the actual publishing unit down to perhaps in some cases paragraphs. I've seen that suggested. And I can see some virtue in that. I mean certainly as someone who publishes a bit, I get very annoyed at having to find new words to express something that I thought I'd expressed in the best possible way in my last article. And I'd actually quite like to use that paragraph again the next time I publish. So I don't know that you'd just be publishing that paragraph on its own, but it might be that your article becomes much more of a network of links to the things that you think you said as well as you could say them, to which was added new stuff, of course. I think the... So Heather Pivovar actually has an interesting... Um, blog post recently on exactly that, that issue. She's writing a paper at the moment and she wants to include the introduction from another paper by reference. I think it would be really interesting to see how that works through in practice. Um, but I think it is an argument for, the, for, the, for publishing those, or at least referring to those portions of things separately. Um, I, think I, I, I think I agree with Michael. I think we will see a change in what researchers do through micropublication because it will enable um, the release of it will lower the burden of publication um, and of authoring. So authoring is a very expensive process. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And the end result of that is that a lot of stuff never gets authored and then, and then never gets published. And I think that, it, that is problematic, and we know it's problematic. So finding ways to reduce the burden where appropriate, where we just decide, oh, here's a little bit of something. It's not going to be part of a bigger story, um, and I want to maximize citations or whatever, whatever it is, I want, I want to make sure that that gets out. That is going to change the 
way in which we deal with a lot of the material we already have. Um, the question whether it radically changes behaviour, I think the question will be then what can we do with that content as it starts to come online because if we have a problem with how much stuff we're dealing with at the moment, it's only going to get an awful lot worse. Okay, uh, one more tweet, Charlie. See, I think most of the others you've kind of addressed already. Okay, that's, that's, that's fine. Anybody else in the uh, audience? Oh, there's a hand up there. It looks like Mr. Cox. I uh, want... Sorry, I, I had a question too. Oh, Far away, yeah. Um, well, I, or, or comments maybe. I think it's a very powerful idea, the idea of the, the needs, and it's true that the needs don't change much over time, but I think that the... Uh, the driving force is when people find more satisfying ways to meet the needs. And I still think this idea of uh, mass, anybody being able to publish things is, is a huge, it, it meets a lot of needs. And uh, specifically, I think a couple of the driving forces that are factors that we found that we can make better ideas when we work together as opposed to alone, which kind of emphasizes this social factor of, of meeting these uh, solving problems. Also that people can build a reputation by merely citing others, so that your ability to pull out interesting ideas in, in your Twitter feeds or other kinds of things, you can build a reputation that then can act as that kind of registration without uh, having an intermediary or a, a necessarily a uh, removed third party, that your registration then becomes what your reputation is in the, in the larger community because anybody can see what you're doing and anybody can uh, curate that, so to speak. So. I, th I think so. I think there's a really interesting example. I didn't really have enough time to talk about this in detail, but the Stack Exchange model is really very, very interesting in this respect. So the way Stack Exchange um, works, for those who, who don't know, people ask questions. Um, anyone can ask a question. Anyone can answer a question. Um, you can, anyone can upvote um, a, either a question or an answer. They can also comment on both, both questions and answers. Um, and so people build up a reputation based on, based on upvotes, but it's not a, such a simple model. What happens, as you get more and more points, you reach various abilities to do things. Um, and the first point you reach is after you get a certain number of points, you are allowed to downvote. <laughs> and after a certain number of points, you are allowed to delete comments. And after a certain number of posts, you're allowed to remove questions and answers. And so it's, a, it's an interesting model um, because it does build up this reputation that has function in that context. Is there any control on who can participate? No, absolutely not. So and, it's, and it's the most valuable source for this type of information. So it doesn't get world. subverted or spammed? No, I mean, it does get, it does get subverted and spammed, um, but people as a community, people are contributing to that, and they give the power to manage that to the people who have the highest reputation. And that, and that reputation is being translated into, again, I didn't really have the time to show you, but those, that jobs site, which is connected to Stack Overflow, is a great place to find people with specific expertise. And equally with Math Overflow, if I needed to find someone who knew something about topology, which is the mathematical area that it mostly covers, um, given that I don't know much about maths, I've got two options. I can go and ask someone about, about people, and one would, one would do that, but it would actually be a really good place to find people who had the expertise. And do you think this has any effect, either beneficial or, or, the other, or otherwise, on the future for journals? Well, I think it's an, what it shows is that, rep, that mechanical reputation systems can work effectively, can have outside effects in the outside world, 
Um, and again, it's, it's, these are, it is serving some of the, some, many of the same functions. There's the registration, there's the certification. Um, there's the, you know, author names are always tied, author handles are always tied to it. So the question for me is, this works in this domain, in this particular site. How do you translate that into the bigger, the bigger space? Because not everything is a question and answer issue. Um, not everything is a narrative, not everything is a data set. How do we think about the ways these could be, could be shared, um, exchanged, across the entire sort of research effort. I think there's going to be, I think the consumer web will get there first. Michael. Well, listening to that, it sounds to me a bit like the X factor, actually, um, in some respects. I mean, I, the problem I have with unmoderated things is I think they often get out of control quite quickly. I mean, you've only got to look at some listservs where there's a certain rule, isn't there, on the internet that after a certain number of postings, the word Hitler is always mentioned. Um, and I, and I think that, we, that that's one of the reasons why we want moderators on, on, on listserv discussions. I think another reason why you might want them is that although I, I mean, I'm not suggesting that having time and date stamped um, media that you could put stuff in doesn't in some respect satisfy what you're talking about in terms of, of registering. I think registering goes further than that because it's actually about a community having confidence of when something was done. So it isn't just a mechanical process. It's also about whether they believe it worked for them or not. And I, and I think that um, there are a lot of people who would find the wisdom of crowds perhaps um, difficult. Well, I think so. The, the point I'd make is that these forums are moderated in the sense that people who have a high enough reputation get to be moderators. They, they can remove stuff, and they, and, and they do. And, and so this particular, I guess, in this particular model, for the for the domains where it works, and there is some there's some interesting social science to be done on which domains, disciplines, focuses this does work and doesn't work in, um, because it has failed in a number of contexts. Um, but these are amongst today the highest quality source of specialised information um, available, and they've done that by a process of accreditation of the people in the community, and so it's very interesting to think. You know, at the moment, we don't really earn the right to be referees or editors. Maybe, maybe editors we do, but, but there's, I think there's a really interesting question of who's a good referee? We've, we've still not really addressed, addressed that um, in, a, in a useful way. I think that would be an extremely powerful thing. Okay, I think we need to call a halt here now. I feel that coffee and refreshments are, are, are beckoning. Um, I would like to say a couple of things. First of all, to thank very much indeed Michael and Cameron for their excellent presentations and the high intellectual level of their debate. Um, I would also encourage you to go to the UKSG website maybe at some stage over the next few days if you want to actually get more of a feel for all of the tweets and things and, and the reactions that were uh, that this particular session has, has generated. Um, it's time now for a break. Um, the break is sponsored by Sage. Um, uh, last time a break was sponsored, the person next to me said, how can you sponsor time? So I think I perhaps ought to make it clear, it's the coffee and the biscuits that, <laughs> <laughs> that they're paying for. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Very, very good.